as I mentioned, uh, my name is Aiden. If I haven't got to meet you before, one of the pastors here. Believe it or not, you know, just let anybody be a pastor here. I'm kidding. But we're glad, that, we're glad that you guys are here. As I said, we're in a series called The Way of Change, Practicing the Presence of Jesus. And we've been saying this every week. But what we've been saying is that we are all formed by all kinds of things. I think this is so important. That we are formed by what we pay attention to, how we spend our time, the relationships that we have, what we think about, what we do with our free time. All these things shape us, inform us. And so what we've been saying is, if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, we want to be formed and shaped by the life of Jesus and what he calls us to. We want to kind of base the rhythms of our lives, the patterns of our lives around the rhythms and patterns that we see given to us in the life of Jesus and in his scriptures. Not so that we can earn God's love. I think it's so important that we talk about that. Sometimes we're like, are we talking about these things so that God will like us? That's not why we're talking about these things. We're talking about these things as an overflow of what God has done for us through the gospel, what we just sang all about. Jesus in the book of John calls himself the true vine. And what we want to do through these different uh, spiritual uh, practices that we've been talking about through these different patterns is that we want to stay connected to the vine. So often at church, we talk about the fruit side, you know, are you doing all these things in your life so that your life looks this way? But what we want to do is what are different practices, different habits that we can do that stay connected to the vine so that Jesus may be the one to bear fruit uh, in our lives. And so we've looked at all kinds of different things. We've looked at, at community, at silence, at feasting and fasting, meditation and celebration. And so we're going to jump right in today. And today I want to look at the spiritual uh, practice of serving. I know you're excited, ladies and gentlemen. Try to contain it as we jump into this. But I'm not sure what came to your mind when you think of serving. Not sure what came to your mind. What came to my mind when I was studying for this was this youth group experience I had. Grew up in the church with the youth group kid. And when you're a youth group kid, all you do is clean up trash and paint houses. You do all kinds of stuff like that, right? You guys who laughed were youth group kids. Aha! Everybody else is like, why'd you do that? You're like, because my youth pastor told me to, right? But we got to do all these different things, right? And one time we were doing, we were out with this like leadership team thing and I had this youth pastor who I'm, I'm not sure how he didn't get fired because he was pretty like, do whatever you want, just don't kill yourself. And we did a lot of things that could have killed us. But we, he was pretty rough around the edges. We do all kinds of different stuff. And this one time we were at this, the horse farm, and we, there was a couple different things we could do. You could either clean up horse poop, or you could, I don't know, move bales of hay around or something, help clean up. And so he kind of asked all the students, he's like, who wants to scoop horse poop? And like, like three people raised their hand. He goes, perfect. Everybody who didn't raise their hand, you guys are going to go scoop horse poop. And so that was the first time I think I scooped horse poop. So I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of serving. But as I've been studying for this and kind of honestly struggling through a lot of this uh, this week, I think that this practice of servanthood, of serving, may be one of the most tangible and profound practices that Jesus gives us. I think it's one of the most, most clear practices and important practices that Jesus gives us. In Matthew 20, verse 26, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we jump into this this morning, can we just pray together that Jesus, you would help focus our hearts I think just this passage we're looking at today has so much to, to tell us and to show us about the nature of who you are and about what you've called us to. And so, Spirit, I pray that you just lead us through this conversation this morning that we might look and be formed more to the image of Jesus. 
Amen. As we jump into this today, as I was reading up on serving, I was thinking about this. There recently in the news has been a big, big deal. Kanye has become a Christian, right? Whether you know this or not, Kanye West, follower of Christ now. Some people are skeptical. That's okay. But Kanye, you know, put out this album called Jesus is King. It's great for the kids. Put it in the car. It's all clean. Great album. But Kanye's been a Christian and everybody is kind of skeptical about it, right? But it's not the first time that a high profile celebrity has become a believer, right? Or has at least proclaimed such things. In the late 70s, Bob Dylan became a believer. Everybody laughs because they were alive then and they were skeptical about that too. But Bob Dylan became a believer, right? Garrett does a great Bob Dylan impression. You should ask him to do it. He does a really good job at that. But Bob Dylan, late 70s, became a believer, and his first album that he put out under kind of his new faith was Slow Train Coming, where he won a Grammy for his song, Gotta Serve Somebody. He goes through this whole song, and he says, "All you can be this person, this person, good, bad, and different, all these different things, but he says this. He says, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Maybe the devil or maybe the Lord but you're gonna have to serve somebody. It's interesting, right? And then one of his contemporaries, John Lennon of the Beatles, kind of rolled his eyes at Bob Dylan's, you know, kind of quest for spirituality and the way that he was doing it. And so uh, Lennon kind of wrote what we would call now a diss track, right? He kind of wrote in response to to, uh, Dylan's song, and he wrote, you gotta serve yourself, which is an awful song. He said, (laughs) just if we're we're talking music, it's an awful song. He says, you gotta serve yourself yourself. Nobody going to do it for you. Well, you may believe in devils and you may believe in laws, but if you don't go out and serve yourself, there ain't no room service here. It's fascinating, right? And this may be a high profile, late 70s shade throwing match, but I think what Lennon says here in his sarcastic tone does shine some light on the way that we perceive our obligations to others and to ourselves, right? And so as we jump into this this morning, what we've kind of been doing is I just want to look first at the way of our world, the way of our culture, and then we might flip that on its head and look at the way of Jesus, and then we might look at ways uh, to apply that. And so as we jump into this, I, I think about this, that if we're talking about servanthood, what is the antithesis of serving? What is kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum? If it, one side of the spectrum is serving, laying my life down, serving somebody, the other end of the spectrum, as Lenin says, is this serving yourself, is this kind of self-centered kind of power grab. I thought of this word power, because for every servant, there is a master, Right? For every time someone has to lay down their life for the sake of something, there's somebody else who takes up power. And that word probably brings a bunch of connotations this morning, but what I, what I mean is that in our fallen and in our sinful state, we'll kind of unpack this a little bit, that we are attracted to different forms of power, which may be control, which may be authority over our own life, kind of self-governance, which is doing things our way. Tim Keller talks about this as being fueled by the ego, right? Kind of our self-importance, our self esteem that we want power and control over situations. We all know this to be true, right? But why do we want it? Like, why are we prone to such things, right? And however that looks for for our lives, why are we prone to power and control over all things? I thought this was interesting. I was reading uh, some, some different news things, and I saw this story by a lady named Julie Beck in the Atlantic, and she said this, people want power because they want autonomy, New research that this whole study suggests that being in charge is appealing because it offers freedom, not because it simply allows people to control others. If you don't believe her, just picture yourself this summer on 76 
at a halt in traffic surrounded by a forest of orange cones, right? And you have no power, no power to go anywhere, to move or to do anything. And the only thing that you want is you want freedom just to be, you want these people out of your way. You want freedom to go where you want to go, right? We see this in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3 is what we call the fall of man. If, if God, God created all things, that he said all things were good, he walked in the garden with mankind. And then we see two chapters later in Genesis 3 that man messed it all up, right? That the fall was human seizing autonomy, kind of the self-power, self-governance for themselves. That they didn't trust that God had their best intentions in mind, and so they grasped for power and autonomy that they may find their own way. And what's interesting, what Beck kind of says in her article is that what we want ultimately, we, we pursue power so that we can have autonomy, but what we ultimately want isn't just, just control, but what we ultimately are looking for is to find our freedom. We want to f- find our freedom in these things. You could almost, here's my math problem I put together. This is as mathy as I get, but in our pursuit of power, we want autonomy, and what we're ultimately looking for is freedom, according to Beck. And this is all kind of driven by the ego. We see this in the Genesis story. The lie told to us is that you can be like God. You can be like God is what the serpent says to Adam and Eve, that you can have power when you can be like God. And what it says is that you will know good and evil, that mankind starts to make the good and evil decisions for themselves, that you can have autonomy over what's good and what's evil, right? That you have control over those things. And in this, we hope that we would find ultimate freedom that we couldn't find in God that we'd find in ourselves was the lie that was told to us. And so today the lie is no different, right? Right? Whether it's in your finances, your position, your relationships, the respect you want, accomplishments you have, whatever it is, whatever it is, we want power because that will lead us to the life that we truly want, the freedom that we truly want in our culture, right? So we hear all the time, if we ascend to these things, fill in your blank. If you ascend or get a hold of these different things, then you'll have power, you'll have control, you'll be able to control and self-govern yourself, and then you'll have this freedom to do and be whoever you want and to live the life, right? That is the lie that's told us. But it's interesting because in this culture, we've been talking about this a lot throughout the series, in a culture that is dead set on autonomy, on individualism, by living life the way that you think it should be lived and how we want it to live, which is a good thing, right? We are all gathered in this room of our own volition, like we're allowed to be in here and we're thankful for that, right? But it's interesting because the fruit that is, that is bared through this can look a little bit different, right? We know that in our culture that both you and I, that our freedom bears a lot of different fruits, right? It doesn't take long before we realize that people are lonely, we're stressed, we're overwhelmed. One uh, writer calls it this ambient anxiety, that everybody's kind of on edge, right? You look at the news, you hear stories, like everybody's a little anxious, right? And I think some of it is that we can, we can pick and do and be anything we wanna be. So then we have to figure out, make sure that we're being the right person, doing the right things so that we can make sure we live up to that, right? That we are addicted and enslaved to schedules, technology, performance, work, and keeping up with the status quo. I was reading in a book this last week, it was so interesting, they were talking about technology, and how technology raises the bar of what the status quo is. Back in the pre-vacuum cleaner days, you had to sweep your house, right? Hours of sweeping your house. And then Oric came out, and now you can sweep your house, right? You can do this hour worth of work in like 20 minutes. Yet you and I both know that the bar was raised, and now that we can clean our house in 20 minutes, the expectation is that your house will always be clean, right? 
And so this technology that we were gonna have this new freedom ended up enslaving us. Same thing with email. Now we can email, we can communicate, but what it did was it turned an eight-hour workday into a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week work week, right? And we can't separate ourselves. That technology raises the bar on expectation and our freedom just powered by the ego of what Beck says, powered by this autonomy, has made a slave to our own idealistic desires. When I was coming into fifth grade, I was homeschooled up before that. You can probably tell. I was homeschooled before coming into fifth grade, and coming, you can only say that if you were homeschooled. And coming into fifth grade, I was about to go into public school. And I could be anybody I wanted to be in public school, anybody, right? And I decided I'm gonna be a guy who spikes his hair. Fifth grade, so I got my LA looks out, half the bottle on my hands, right? It was like 20 bucks a week to keep my hair spiked. And it took a long time. It took like 45 minutes to spike my hair. And so I came into fifth grade and everybody thought it was so cool. They didn't really think it was cool, but I thought they thought it was cool. And so I began to spike my hair every morning, waking up earlier and earlier and earlier to spike my hair, make sure it looked perfect. And this freedom that I was gonna find and being who I was gonna be ended up enslaving me, right? Because now I had to keep up with being cool. No one thought I was cool. But the ladder always grows taller. The level of enoughness is never enough. And just when we think we have arrived, the point of destination seems to be a little bit farther off that our freedom ultimately leads us to slavery a lot of times. We just talked about this last week with the story of the prodigal son, this parable that Jesus tells, that the son has this relationship with the father and what he says is, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me all my inheritance. Give me my power. Give me my stuff so I can go autonomously live the life that I want to live and be free. And he goes and does that, and we know how the story goes. Whether you know this story or just watch any movie, it's the same story. They go off and live the life that doesn't fill him the way he wanted to be filled. And what ends up happening is he becomes a slave to his selfish desires in our pursuit of self-preservation, self-gratification, self-actualization. We become slaves to ourselves and our selfish desires. And we have to ask ourselves, does this pursuit of power offer the life that we really want? Does it offer the freedom that it promised, right? Now that's just conjecture. You don't have to agree with me, but as we paint a picture and look at what we live every day in our culture, we want to look at the way of Jesus and what Jesus calls us to in contrast to that. Because this, the way of Jesus is always, always, always upside down from the way of our world. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to Jesus, right? The ways of Jesus look foolish. And so as we dive into this today, there's some, a place I want to go that I think is so profound that I think shows us so much about the character and the nature of God and what he calls us to in light of that. But we have to do a little side road first, right? We have to go somewhere else first. I feel like anytime we're talking about Jesus, anytime we're talking about living in light of the way of Jesus, we have to see Jesus for who he really is. Because if we have like little American, like Oprah version of Jesus, where it's just like, he wants you to be happy and have nice things, like, then then the authority to call us into a life to follow him is like, yeah, maybe, right? Which explains why a lot of us in our culture are like, Jesus, she's nice, but I'm going to do whatever, right? But when we see Jesus for who he really is, what he calls us to takes on a whole new form that we have to see Jesus in the weight and the power of who he is. C.S. Lewis calls this the weight of glory, right? That Jesus is truly, truly powerful. 
that he's beyond our imagination. I love the song we sang, Majesty. We just paint this picture of the greatness of who God is. I want to just throw a couple passages at us. We'll throw us up on the screen. Colossians 1.15. This says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, that's the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything Jesus might have supremacy. He is not just the Lord over 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. He's not just the Lord over church. He is the Lord of all, of nations, of history, of politics, of politicians, of economies, the future, the past, technology, relationships, of life and of death. Are you with me, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Revelations 1.18 says, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. I love that picture of Jesus raising on the third day, pff, kicking the stone and spinning the keys of hell and death around his finger. There's a hymn that says, his glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. This is the Jesus. Jesus that we're talking about. We're not talking about self-help Barnes and Noble Jesus. We're talking about the Jesus that's painted in the scripture is the creator and sustainer of all things. We have to grasp his power and greatness if we're going to go where we're going today or else we'll miss the entire point. Because in light of the majesty and the power and the glory of who Jesus is, he shows us a different way to power, a different way to freedom. You guys have, have, if you have Philippians in your laps, if you guys open your phones, your Bibles to Philippians 2, we'll throw it up on the screens. You can read it with us here. But there's a powerful, powerful passage. If you're borrowing a Bible in the chair in front of you, you know, you can star this passage. The next person coming in just needs that star too. So you can underline in that Bible, that's fine. But I want to read this passage. We're going to camp out today, and there's so much in here that shows us about Jesus. You can read up on the screen. We'll start in verse five. Paul is writing to the book, or to the, the uh, church in Philippi. He's writing a letter and he's instructing them to, to in their relationships with one another, to be humble in their relationships with one another, to serve one another, to look for the interest of each other. And he says this, verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you are unfamiliar with this passage, I would make a note and come back to this passage often. It shows us so much about the beauty of Jesus in the gospel and what we see, the God who we just talked about, the God who is the creator, sustainer of all things in Jesus. That Philippians tells us the way that he humbled himself, that he clothed himself in humility as he descended to us. Look at this, verse six, we see that Jesus, Jesus models humility in his relationship with the Father. That Jesus is equal with the Father. Whenever we talk about the Trinity, it blows our mind a little bit, and that is perfect, right? That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God together, and what we see is that Jesus, who equal with these parts, 
he humbled himself that before the foundations of the earth, there was this cosmic redemption story. And in this story, Jesus would be the one in the Trinity to make his way to us. And so he humbled himself, he submitted to the Father, and he humbled himself to become one of us. He laid aside his glory. There's a theologian, Karl Barth, talks about the idea that he concealed his glory, that as he became one of us, he still had it, but he concealed it. Verse seven, we see his humility in the incarnation, that he made himself nothing. Some versions say he emptied himself. Now, it's, it's, it's important to, to stop here and look that Jesus did not lay aside his divinity. He didn't, he didn't exchange his godness to be a human, right? He didn't stop being God in order to become a human. I love the way a guy named Kent Hughes said this. He says, Christ did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave. Rather, he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. I love that. The Christmas carol says, mild he laid his glory by, born that men no more may die. That he models humility in his relationship in the Trinity with the Father. He, he models humility in his incarnation. In verse eight is that he models his humility even unto death. That Jesus came, was born to a teenage girl, born in a backwoods town and grew up in a very obscure life. And then he died an excruciating and shameful death on a Roman torture device, alone and abandoned by his friends. That he didn't just die of old age and become, I was like, that's so weird that Jesus just kind of withered away. He died a shameful and embarrassing way. That from heaven to his death, Jesus models humility. That in Christ, God, the Alpha, the Omega, the creator and sustainer, humbled himself and became a servant. Gotta let that sink in this morning. A servant usually unwillingly uses their life for the sake of their master, right? But God humbles himself, lays down his own life. Jesus is very clear that no one takes his life from him. Jesus wasn't like a little passive bystander, like, oh, poor Jesus, this is so mean. No one takes his life from him. He lays his life down, is what Jesus says. For the sake of others, for the sake of his enemies, is what scripture would say. It's interesting, go back to the creation story. Adam and Eve, they they wanted to ascend to be divine. You can be like God. Even at the time that that Paul was writing this letter, the, the Roman emperor would have been Nero, who would have killed Christians. See, he wanted people to consider him divine, yet God, the one who is divine, who is the creator, lowers himself and his ways look like foolishness to the world. All this talk of God humbling self, it causes us to reevaluate how we use our power, how we see our power, and what we think of when we see true freedom, right? That the gospel shakes all this stuff up, Jesus shakes all this stuff up. It's interesting, in the article we mentioned earlier, Beck's article says that in our desire for power, what we really want is freedom. But because of Philippians 2, because of this passage, we see that the gospel shows us that in Christ, we find true freedom. Freedom from what? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked, my friends. The gospel offers us, we sing about this all, everything we sing about, everything we talk about, the beauty and the riches of the gospel, that we have new life in Christ, resurrection life in Christ that can't be taken from us. That we have forgiveness, that we find grace, that we have a new identity, that we have the power of spirit at work within us. And this is all these things we sing about, all these things that we talk about it are outside of our ability to get it for ourselves. 
And we say this all the time. We're called Grace Church. We say this all the time. But we have to know why we say it or else we're going to miss the point. If there is something, if there is something you could do to get God to, to like you, to get God's favor, to get God to let you into his good graces, to get salvation of yourself, if there was something you could do, it would mean two different things for us. It would mean two different things for us. It would mean this, that we are either super, super insecure or that we're super prideful. This is what I mean. Walk with me here. If we had to do X, Y, Z to get God's favor, to get God's approval, to, get, to enter into the new life of Christ, if we had to do these certain things, then we better keep doing those same things to keep it, right? If you had to do X, Y, Z, you better keep doing X, Y, Z. You know, sometimes if you grew up in church, you like walk down the aisle, every time there's an altar call, you just had to update your resume to make sure you were going to heaven when you die, right? And so there's always this insecurity because you're never sure, right? While you did X, Y, and Z, you know you also did A, B, and C, and you're like, got to re, reapply for this thing, right? And we may, some of you came, some of you may be walking with that today, and what happens is our entire life is fixated on ourselves. So people, we talk about serving, we talk about loving, we talk about living out the life of Christ. We don't do it out of an overflow. We do it out of fear that people become projects. I love you and I serve you because I have to make sure that I'm in the club. I have to make sure that I stay in God's good graces so everybody becomes a means to my salvation. And my eyes are always on myself. And it's exhausting, right? You're never sure where you stand with God and your eyes are always on yourself. On the other end of the spectrum, I think these actually go hand in hand oftentimes, is that we become very prideful. You know, if we cleaned ourselves up and we think we did X, Y, Z to get in, we're kind of brushing the dirt off our shoulders and we feel pretty great about ourselves, right? And we look down on the people who haven't got to where we got, right? I am a big pop drinker, but just recently I stopped drinking pop and I started drinking LaCroix, right? Anybody else? I really thought I was gonna, yeah. You're bougie if you're drinking LaCroix. If you drink a LaCroix, just so we're on the same page, you're better than people who drink pop. It's just what happens, right? That's how I feel. I drink pop all the time. My dentist goes to this church and I think he built a house in California with money from my teeth. I, I always drink pop and just recently I'm like, I should probably be an adult. So I started drinking LaCroix. And when I see you drinking pop, I judge you. I'm so much better than you. I got my pinky out drinking my French drink, right? And I'm like, I remember, but the truth is I'll probably drink a pop in like a week from now. But that's what happens. There's a passage in scripture where the Pharisees, they're praying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these sinners and tax collectors. What happens when we think that we procured our salvation by our own works, by our own merits, then we are prideful and we think that we did this all ourselves and our eyes are focused on ourselves, right? And what happens is when life gets unfair, when life takes a hard left, which you know it's going to, then we look at God. What Tim Keller calls this is that he says that all of a sudden we look at God and God owes us. We're like, whoa, 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 big man upstairs. I've been doing all this stuff. I changed my life, kept my act together. Why did this person die? Why did I lose this job? Why did this happen to me? You owe me, man. And what happens is that our eyes are still focused on ourselves. But through the gospel, we have true freedom. What do we mean when we mean true freedom? The gospel eliminates us from these categories. It eliminates fear and insecurity. It eliminates pride. It lays waste to those things because the only way that we stand before God is because of his grace towards us, his unmerited favor towards us. And it humbles us, right? It frees us to take our eyes off of ourselves. 
The people around me don't have to become projects. The people around me I don't have to look down on. The people around me I can love and serve because I've been loved and served. We don't have to be obsessed with ourselves. Freedom from ourselves is true freedom, right? Paul writes about this so much in the book of Galatians. Galatians 5.1, Paul says this. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Saying, don't be burdened again by your pride. Don't be burdened again by your fear, by your need to perform, by yourself and your selfish desires and the things that, of your flesh that you want to kill. He says in, in Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, what's he say? Serve one another. How? Humbly in love. This almost leads us to a new equation. If the old equation was that our pursuit of power gets us autonomy and that's going to find us true freedom, the way of Jesus is surrendering our power. Surrendering our power and in that we find true freedom. We find true freedom in laying down our selfish desires from being enslaved to ourselves, and that frees us to actually serve. Not to, be, not to be powered by the ego, but powered by the spirit. That we look at the way of our world, the way of Jesus, and just what I want to do for the next 10 minutes or so is I want to look at the way of change. That how do we begin to practice servanthood in our lives? This could be a sermon series in and of itself, but I just want to fly through a couple things. That how does this reality about how Jesus humbled himself and call us to live in light of this, how are some ways that this looks in our lives? I want to throw that Philippians passage back up. Verse five says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Say it this way. You can write this down if you have notes. There's a big old blank back there. You say, we, we do this by embracing the mindset of Jesus embracing the mindset of Jesus that Paul says is ours in Christ. In saying having the same mindset, you could also have the word attitude in there. Paul isn't saying just simply perform some good acts. He's not simply saying, hey, just do some like good deeds for people. Like that's not what he's saying because you and I and anybody who's married both knows that we can do things to get something back, right? Like we can try to do certain things for our own glory to get what we really want. Reminds me of a wonderful episode of The Office when Dwight wants to get Andy fired because Andy took his job. So Dwight's trying to get everybody on his side. He's trying to get everybody to agree with him so he can get this guy fired. And Dwight says this, can't a guy just buy some bagels for his friends so they'll owe him a favor which he can use to get someone fired who stole a co-manager position from him anymore? When did everyone get so cynical, right? That Dwight wants to buy everybody bagels so they can agree with him. We can all do acts of service. We can just serve, but it can be for the sake of ourselves, right? But Paul is saying something else. He's saying, don't just do some good deeds here and there for people. For people. He's, t- purple. He's talking about going from simply serving to becoming a servant, having the mindset of a servant. He's saying, have that same mindset that Jesus had almighty, powerful, majestic Jesus had when he laid aside his glory and became one of us. Matthew 20, 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That we must first see ourselves as servants to Jesus and then to others. It's so interesting this is how all the New Testament authors, the New, the New Testament, a lot of it is, is letters that were written to the churches. 
And in these letters, they kind of, you know, just like you'd sign a letter like, hello, from Aiden. Like, they, they sign their letters and they kind of say who they are. They'll throw us up on the screen. Romans, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Second Peter, a servant of the apostle, or an apostle of Jesus. Jude, a servant. James, a servant. That all the authors of the New Testament saw themselves, not as just people who were serving, but as servants to Christ and his church that when we think about how this plays out in our life, that we embrace humility in our relationships. In the same way that we see Jesus embracing humility with the Trinity when he humbles himself and descends to us, that he, that he humbles himself, that we humble ourselves and embrace humility in our relationships. Philippians 2.5 again says, in your relationships with one another, have that same mindset as Jesus. John Ortberg in his, in his book, The Life He Always Wanted, which talks about these spiritual practices, he calls this, this, this attitude of servanthood appropriate smallness. I love that. He calls it appropriate smallness because we know, you and I both know, that kind of the, 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 the enemy of servanthood is, is pride, right? That pride puffs us up so much that Paul in Romans 12 says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought that we so instantly want to pride ourselves, but Paul is calling to lay aside our pride, to surrender our power, and practice Christ-like humility in our relationships with one another. That as we do this, as we practice humility with our relationships, that we are abiding in the vine. That Jesus, through through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he serves us, right? And he continues to do so. And as we abide in the vine, as we stay connected to Jesus by practicing these things, by living out these things in light of our faith, that we are joining Jesus in the work that he's doing. That the Bible calls us, we're becoming co-laborers with Jesus in the work of serving uh, one another. And so what does some of this look like? I think Keller Keller calls this, Tim Keller, he's an author, he calls this imitating incarnation. I love that, that we imitate the incarnation of Jesus in our relationship with one another. And there's like a thousand different examples. I don't have an exhaustive list. But as we, as we talk through this, I want you to have in mind who is the relationship that keeps coming to mind as we talk about serving. Is it your, your spouse, your kids, your annoying coworkers, your family, next door neighbors, those in your group or biblical community? Whatever the context is, as we talk through these things, it's not going to make sense unless we apply these into the relationships in our life, unless we think of who we can humbly serve, right? This may look a lot of different ways. These are just a few. That having humility in our relationships, I think, looks like listening. We talk about this a lot. James talks about, and the Bible talks about, being slow to speak and quick to listen, right? I listened to this, I heard some stat this week that when someone else is talking, I don't remember how high the percentage is, I'm not a machine, but like this big percentage of the time, we're not actually listening, we're just thinking about what we want to say next, right? I know it's true for myself, I never shut up, and all I'm thinking about is what I want to say, right? But we have humility in our relationships, when we practice listening to the stories of the people around us, when we, when we bear burdens and hear the stories of those around us, learning the art of asking questions, think about this, that we practice humility in our relationships when we love and serve the way that the person in the relationship feels loved and served. I think that this, this is especially important for marriages there's a guy who wrote a book about love languages and the way that we feel loved. And a lot of times what happens, I know us husbands, a lot of times we like to do acts of service, right? 
So I did the dishes for her. I don't know why she's mad. Like we, we like do stuff hoping that, but that might not be how she feels loved and vice versa. He may not feel loved in certain ways. And so we have humility in our relationships where we listen and say, how can I love you and serve you in a way that you feel loved and served? It's not just true for marriage. It's true for all relationships, right? It's true for all relationships. I think there's a piece of this that's humbly admitting when we are wrong and learning the art of apology, right? I know you've all done this. I've done it. Where you apologize this way. Sarah, I'm sorry that you got mad at what I said, right? Like that's how we, it's not an apology. It's not an apology. You laugh because you did it, right? But there's this art to being, okay, where, where was I wrong in this situation? To look at ourselves with humility and approach, the Bible calls us as, as followers of Jesus, ministers of reconciliation. That a lot of times, like the, they wronged me, I'll wait I'll wait till they come. But we we have humility in our relationships where we, whether we were the ones who committed the offense or not, move towards the other one in the relationship. We're treading on thin ice at this point, I know. This is a whole sermon series in and of itself. But I think practicing humility, looking at the God who humbled himself, who moved towards us while we were still sinners, right? I think there's a piece of experiencing sorrow when my sin and selfishness harms a relationship. Like we can be flippant about, well, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. Let's just carry on. But there's like actually kind of like a, a, a contrition to saying, man, I, I'm, I feel the sorrow and grief for how I hurt this person, right? Like feeling the weight of that I think is important. As I was preparing for this week, I honestly was struggling to put skin on some of this and I was walking up and down the office saying, anybody have any ideas of how we can apply humility in our relationships? And Sarah Friddle? Our uh, giveaway manager gave me some good advice. She went through a pretty life-altering thing a year ago. And she said this, and I thought this was profound, that we practice humility in our relationships when we're willing to let someone else serve us, right? Like pride a lot of times doesn't want to be served because we don't want to owe anybody anything, right? But there's this act of letting someone serve, serve you that expresses humility in your relationships, it's not an easy thing for some of us. We're like, whoa, 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 don't do that. We see that in the Bible when Jesus goes to wash the disciples' feet. He's like, whoa, don't, what? it's confusing, right? Because when we are served, it expresses that there's something that we need, right? Which causes us to humble ourselves. There's a thousand of these. I think as you guys go to groups this week, this, there's a lot of ways to put skin on this, specifically what humility looks like in our relationships, but I want to land with this one. I think it looks like ridding ourselves ridding ourselves of the sinful idea that certain tasks, certain conversations, certain situations, and certain people are below me. Like, just to recap, we're talking about the creator of the whole universe who descended as one of us, became a baby, born to a teenage girl in the middle of nowhere in the Middle East. That that God is the one who we are called to have the same mindset on. And so it's this kind of sinful, prideful mindset. Like, nah, it's below me. I'm not, not going to have that conversation. I'm not going to do that. That's for a plebeian, not for someone like myself, right? We say this a lot around here. That if servanthood is below you, leadership is above you. Say it again for the people in the back. If servanthood is below you, leadership is above, is, is above you. I think that's interesting. I think about husbands as we're called to lead our families. You know what that looks like? 
looks like telling them what to do and you sitting down at the head of the table. Wrong! It's not what it looks like. It looks like serving like Jesus is what leadership looks like. Serving from humility is being willing to inconvenience yourself for the sake of someone else that may not, probably won't, give you the credit. Which leads us to this, and we'll, we'll land here, that as we embrace humility in our relationships, as we embrace the same mindset as Jesus, that we're called to embrace secrecy. Sounds a little sketchy, but this is what I mean. As we embrace secrecy, the tendency will always be for us to seek glory in our service. That we want to seek glory for what we do, but all through the scriptures, Jesus talks about when we fast, when we pray, when we, when we give, that we're not supposed to do so in order to get attention for it, but we're supposed to do so under the radar so that we won't get glory for it, but that we'll stay connected to the vine on a deep and intimate level. It's, it's very, you and I know this, it's very easy to do good things and get credit for it, right? Like, it's like that Facebook post, it's like, man, I just gave this homeless guy three bucks and I just selflessly, it humbled me, really, to give him the money. Hashtag blessed. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah, I want everybody to know because God forbid that I do something kind and no, one, no one's there to hear about it, right? Like, we gotta make sure everyone knows when we do something kind, but in, when, we, when we are serving as Christ, that there's this practice of secrecy where it flies under the radar. We all have this tendency. The sinful tendency to, to get glory for the things that we do, right? I heard this story about this pastor, sounded like myself, where he was walking by the auditorium one day and there was programs and papers everywhere, and so he's like, I'm gonna go clean those up. As the lead pastor, I'm gonna go clean. And he's picking up these programs and he's having this conversation in his head that he's like, I really hope someone walks by and sees how humble I'm being, right? And so he's just picking up these papers, like looking at the door the whole time, right? Because we want credit for these things. But secrecy, this practice of secrecy, which we see Jesus instructing us to do, is doing these things under the radar. John Ortberg refers to this as the ministry of the mundane. That servanthood in and of itself is a practice that oftentimes flies under the radar as not to get caught with the hype of our own ego, right? Jesus calls us as followers of him to do some pretty big things. Calls us to love our enemies. Calls us to die to ourselves, to bear our crosses, to turn the other cheek. He calls us to some big stuff. And oftentimes, we talked about this the first week as we kicked off the series, oftentimes we're like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to do it. Fourth quarter, NBA finals, jumping in. I'm going to forgive my enemies. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to turn the other cheek. And it never works. Because we've done nothing on the back end to train ourselves for the things that Jesus has called us to do. And all that these practices are, the spending time in silence and solitude with Jesus, to meditating on his word, to celebrating life with others, to practicing hospitality with people, all, all these different things we've been talking about are, are rather simple practices that train us for what Jesus has truly called us to, that he might bear fruit in our lives that looks just like him. And so these seemingly mundane practices like serving train us for what Jesus has called us to. Matthew 16, 25 says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Let's pray together this morning. God, we are just so thankful that we can't quite understand you. 
We're thankful that you're beyond our comprehension, that you are beyond our understanding, that you are majestic and filled with glory and that you are light. And in all these things where words would be extinguished to describe you, that you descended to us, that you humbled yourself and became one of us. And Jesus, our prayer is that for those of us in the room that are, that are followers of Christ, that are also husbands and wives and children and parents and coworkers and bosses and employees and neighbors, whatever the relationship is, God. Our prayer is that we might see others, that we might see our relationships in light of the humility that you displayed. Jesus, the greatest enemy in this is gonna be our pride, So Jesus, I pray that you would humble us, that you would help us in these relationships to be ministers of reconciliation, to go first, to lay our lives down for the sake of others. Jesus, I pray that you would show us the the frailty of the freedom that we pursue, kind of the, the rickety nature of the power that we desire. Jesus, I pray that you would reveal those things for what they really are, that we might lose our lives so that we might find it in you and what you've called us to. Jesus, we acknowledge that in all these things, it is you who first served us. It is you who first, first loved us. It is you who first laid your life down for the sake of us, your enemies, and Jesus, that you have brought us in and called us friends. And so we just want to live and serve out of that overflow this morning. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful that you call us your own. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.